of shorter sermons. I have started a new pattern of shortening my sermons, but I don't want you to get the bright idea that I'm going extra short in the future. Tonight we are continuing a study that Ben introduced us to uh, just last week, a study that we are calling Less. And the idea with this study is to examine the seven things that God hates, according to Proverbs chapter 6, because those are things that we need to constantly be reducing in our lives. We need to have less of these characteristics, these attributes. And if you will, turn to Proverbs chapter 6 very quickly. I want us to revisit that list of seven things that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. This passage says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So Proverbs chapter 6 identifies seven things that the Lord hates and has been pointed out last week. The assumption is that as God's people, we will hate these things as well. And hating these things means that, that they're not part of our life. Hating these things means that we seek to eliminate them from our conduct, from our attitudes, from our mindset. Hating these things means that these things become less and less a part of our lives. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks on Sunday nights is each of the ministers is going to take turns turns examining the items in this list of things that we are instructed to hate. And tonight we'll start by looking at the very first item on the list, the item called haughty eyes or a proud look, depending on which translation you use. In other words, the, the first thing that, that Solomon says there needs to be less of in our lives is pride. Arrogance, self-exaltation. But why? Why must there be less of these things? Why is it that God hates pride? I'm going to keep it simple tonight. I'm going to boil it down to two things. And the first thing, the first reason God hates pride, the first reason there must be less pride in my life, is because haughty eyes cause us to forget God. Pride causes us to forget God. I want you to think about Samson for a moment. The Lord blessed Samson with incredible physical strength, which, which Samson then used to defeat God's enemies. We often reference the story of Samson because he did these incredible, superhero-like things in scripture. Now typically before we read about the manifestations of Samson's superhuman might, we'll come across statements like the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's the case in Judges chapter 14 and verse 6 when he killed the lion with his bare hands. It's preceded by the statement that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And then if you go over to Judges chapter 14 and verse 9 when he uh, kills 30 men of Ashkelon and gave their clothes to those wedding guests who solved his riddle, guess what? That feat of might was preceded by the statement that the 
Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And over in Judges chapter 15, when he killed 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, that phrase once again precedes this incredible manifestation of his strength. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That phrase tells us that Samson's might, that Samson's feat of strength is because of the Lord's empowerment of him. But it seems as though Samson eventually forgot that his strength was enabled by God and he began to believe that he was the source of his own strength, that he was sufficient unto himself to do these mighty things. And the reason I think that has to do with his relationship with Delilah. As you may recall, Delilah was a Philistine herself, and on behalf of her countrymen, as well as her bank account, she requested that Samson reveal to her the source of his strength. On three different occasions, Samson intentionally misled her, saying that seven fresh bowstrings or new ropes or weaving his hair into the web of a loom then fastening it with a pin, all of these things would render him weak. And every time he said there was something that would make him powerless, Delilah tried it. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I think if I told my wife these things and she tried them, I would start to realize I probably shouldn't give away the big secret. I think I would be smart enough to figure that out, that if I tell her about my hair, my hair is coming off. Because everything else she's attempted and she's tried. So I better not reveal the secret. But Samson is not the brightest guy in the world. Because as you read his story, you find out in Judges chapter 16 and verse 17 that he reveals his secret, hair that had never been cut. And you have to think, you have to believe that Samson knew, based on history, that Delilah was going to cut his hair. I, I mean, I can't think that Samson was ignorant enough to believe that she wasn't going to do this. So it makes me wonder, if she has done everything he's mentioned before, and, and he has every reason to believe that she would do that again, why would he give away this valuable secret? Why would he reveal such vital information if he knew she would attempt it? See, I believe Samson told her his secret because he had forgotten that his strength came from God and not himself. And the reason I think that is because of the very statement he makes when he awakens that moment after she has cut his hair. It's a statement that appears in Judges chapter 16 and verse 20. She has someone shave his head while he sleeps on her lap. And then she awakens him and says, the Philistines are upon you. And like every other time before, he jumps up. In Judges chapter 16 and verse 20, this is what he says though. I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. His statement is focused on him. Not once does he mention the Lord. Not once does he mention the one from whom he derived his power. Not once 
does he reference the fact that these manifestations of strength were a result of the Spirit of the Lord rushing on him. He doesn't say, I'm going to rise up and the Spirit of the Lord will come upon me and I'll defeat these Philistines. Not once does he mention God. It's all about himself. And I think that shows us, I think that at least demonstrates that his mentality had changed and he had forgotten who the source of his strength was. See, I don't think Samson's downfall was a woman. I think it was a self-glorifying mindset that had forgotten about God. And you and I are quite capable of making the same mistake. I know this because of Revelation chapter 3. In the the chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we have seven letters written to the seven churches of Asia, all penned by Jesus via John. In Revelation chapter 3, we come to the letter written to the church in Laodicea. This church is most well known as the church that was called lukewarm, and that's usually what we focus on when we address the church at Laodicea. But there's something else that's said to this church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Not verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 17. It's there in that passage that Jesus indicated the church in Laodicea possessed an attitude which said, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. This isn't just talking to a, an Old Testament, talking about an Old Testament hero who had superhuman strength. This is talking about the Lord's church, Christians in the first century. This is the attitude of members of the body of Christ. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And it's as though the church in Laodicea was full of people who were getting their sense of identity and their sense of security from their prosperity rather than from their God. And there was an unintentional consequence of their self-sufficiency. If you look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I can't help but notice that when Jesus addressed this self-sufficient church, he didn't have anything good to say to them. He didn't commend them for anything. Instead, he said, basically, you've kicked me out. I'm on the outside knocking, trying to get back in, because in your self-sufficiency, you decided you didn't need me anymore. Your mindset that you are rich, you've prospered, you need nothing, has said unintentionally that you don't need me and so now I'm on the outside knocking trying to get back in Jesus is forced to ask the church the very people he bought with his own blood he's having he's forced to ask the church to let him back into his church and that tells me that even as a child of God I have the capacity to be struck with pride, to be, to be struck with these haughty eyes that forget about God. And what I need is a massive dose of humility when that happens. I need the mindset that John the Baptist had when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. I need a reminder, a reminder of just how much I need 
Because in these moments where haughty eyes plague us, it's very easy for them to cause us to forget God. And that's one reason God hates pride. Because in our pride, we stop seeing Him. But there is another reason God hates pride and another reason why there needs to be less of it in my life. And that's because haughty eyes cause us to diminish others. Not only does pride cause us to forget God, but it causes us to diminish one another. Think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is recorded in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. According to the parable, there was a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray, and this is how he prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's it. That's his prayer. Done. He didn't praise God in this prayer. He didn't ask God for guidance. He didn't even seek God's will on anything when he prayed. In fact, his prayer wasn't about God. It was about himself. Everything he said in his prayer that's recorded in Luke chapter 18 is about himself. And his prayer wasn't directed to God. His prayer was directed to the people at the temple who would overhear him praying. He prayed to be heard by other people. This guy's prayer really wasn't a prayer. Meanwhile, you have a tax collector who's present, who this Pharisee did mention in his prayer, and that tax collector was over there laying down on the ground, refusing to look in God's general direction, beating his chest, and pleading for God's mercy. What's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector when it came to their prayers? The difference is their comparative standard. You see, when the Pharisee prayed, he prayed while comparing himself to other people. When the tax collector prayed, he prayed comparing himself to God. But here's the thing. It's very easy for us to be like the Pharisee. Maybe not so much in the way we pray, but in the way we think. Because our flesh loves to make comparisons. We love to compare ourselves to people who are worse off than ourselves. We love to look at others and say, well, at least I'm not like them. And spiritually speaking, we can do that. We can compare ourselves to somebody we think is less mature than we are, less committed than we are, less faithful than we are. And the problem is when we start making such comparisons, we're choosing a comparative standard that is far too easy. And yet, we do it. When we want to compare ourselves spiritually, we would much rather compare ourselves to a Judas than to a Paul. Because if we compare ourselves to a Judas, we can feel a whole lot better about ourselves. But you know what's the problem with that methodology? 
your standard's too low. I've said this before, but you don't claim to be the strongest person alive because you've lifted a toy that an infant couldn't. You don't claim to be the fastest person alive because you outran a toddler. You don't claim to be the smartest person alive because you beat a child at tic-tac-toe. You don't do that because you know your comparative standard is far too low. But that's essentially what we're doing when we compare ourselves to other mortals. Because guess what? We're all flawed. We're all sinful. We're all wrong in some way. We need a comparative standard that's appropriate. And Jesus says the comparative standard that you must analyze yourself by is God. It's in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 that Jesus instructed us to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He didn't say be more perfect than your neighbor. He said be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the point is, as one preacher said, only by looking at God can we ever truly see ourselves because it's only then that we're comparing ourselves by a standard that really matters. William Beebe, a renowned 20th century scientist, recounted a ritual in which he and President Teddy Roosevelt used to engage. He wrote that after an evening of talk, we would go out on the lawn and search the skies until we found the faint spot of light beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. Then one or the other of us would recite, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of one billion suns, each larger than our own. Then Teddy Roosevelt would grin and say, Now I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. See, we need to be reminded of just how big God is. Just how great God is. How marvelous God is. And we need to be reminded of just how puny we are. God hates haughty eyes. God hates a prideful look because those things cause us to forget him and cause us to diminish one another. To diminish creatures that were made in his image. Because God hates haughty eyes and a prideful look, we must do the same. And in conclusion, I want to remind you that God really only sees two kinds of people. Those who exalt themselves and those that humble themselves. At least that's the two categories of people Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 18 and verse 14. At the conclusion of that parable of the Pharisee and tax collector when he said, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And scripture asserts that only those who humble themselves will at the proper time be exalted by God. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6. As we study these things that God hates, the first thing on the list has to do with pride. The question of the evening is this. Is that something you struggle with? Do you possess haughty eyes or a prideful look? Are you struggling with the humility that God has called us to possess? 
Because if you are, if pride is present in your life, it's something that there should be no more of. And so this evening, as we gather here and begin this study of the seven things God hates, we look at pride and challenge ourselves to rid pride from our eyes. Tonight, we need to acknowledge that our Lord had no pride. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, and died for you and I. He's we emulate. He lacked all haughtiness, all arrogance, all self-exaltation, even though he was deserving of any of it. And he went to the cross so he could pay the price for the very things that God hates. Maybe you can examine your life tonight and realize you're allowing some things to fester that God can't stand. And maybe you need to take those things to the cross. Tonight, as we're getting here, if you have any need to respond to the invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.